There was a phrase that bounced around for a little while, or a phrase, an acronym, whatever, DTR. And uh, I, 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 this was like, so this was a phrase that apparently had a short lifespan. It was used sometime between after when my wife and I were dating and like before my kids entered their, are, are thinking about entering dating relationships. Like, because I asked my kids, do, do the cool kids still use the phrase DTR? And they didn't know what that meant. That made me happy for two reasons. One, because it was kind of a lame phrase, but two, because that means they're not talking to people about relationships. So that made me happy. So DTR, for those of you who don't know, it means defining the relationship. So it's, it's this, this moment that's supposed to happen at some point in relationship. You've been hanging out for a little while, maybe you've been on a few dates, maybe in texting, talking, whatever. And at some point, you have to actually sit down and say, okay, what are we doing here? Um, how do, what, like, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm going for. Here's, here's what's on my heart. What's, what's on your heart? And on a human level, that can be awkward. It can be funny. It can be really good. It can go any number of different ways. I remember for us what that was, even though we didn't use the term, it was on the, uh, the back deck outside my mom's apartment. We had gone on about four dates, uh, my wife and I, and because we lived in different cities, it required some kind of intentionality. Are we going to see each other or not? So after about four times, it'd been about a month, about once a week, we're like, okay, I, I, I'm, I'm not the best at initiating things like this, but I knew something has to happen here. So we sit down and we talk and, and it's that nervous kind of like, so I've been thinking, you know, and, and, and thankfully it was reciprocated. So it was a sweet and it was a joyous moment. And that moment, really, the, the memory only grows fonder with time because as you look back on everything that's transpired since, that memory has grown in, in depth of sweetness and character. It means so much more even now than it did at the time. That could be funny or awkward or sweet for humans on a human-to-human level. On a much more serious level, there comes a point for each of us with our Creator and with our God when we must clearly communicate with him, who, who are you to me? And who am I to you? And, and what are we? What's the dynamic? What's the nature of our relationship? What are we going to be? What is my commitment to you? In a very real sense, the creator of the universe, Jesus Christ, is going to demand of each one of us one day, that we answer the question, who do you say that I am? Jesus has been ministering in Matthew 16. He's been ministering for some time now with the disciples. He's been traveling region to region. There's been controversy after controversy, miracle after miracle, display of authority after display of authority. There have been crowds that have been coming and going, people saying they're with them and then not, people leaving and coming, all these things. But here with his disciples, we come on in this text at this moment in time to this point where Jesus wants to know from them specifically, let's get down to brass tacks. Who do you say? that I am. That's a question, as I said, that's going to come to all of us. And so we want to understand that more clearly from this text, from Matthew chapter 16, beginning of verse 13. The first thing I want to make clear for us here in our time this afternoon is this. Jesus wants to know who you say he is. This is, this is true for all of us. This is a question that's coming. Jesus wants to know, who is it that you say he is? And guys, I'm going to keep going on this dating thing for a minute. And for those of you who are single, um, this is, I'm, I trust this is helpful for you guys. Honestly, listen, she wants to know what you think. 
Uh, she wants to know where you're at. She wants you to communicate. Now, honest conversations are often uh, not our strength. They're not comfortable, but they can bring clarity and they do bring confidence and freedom. Jesus has had, as we said, a bunch of disciples, crowds coming and going, hanging around. But if you're going to be his disciple, he needs to know what it is that you really believe. Verse 13. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples. So he asks the whole group, the disciples who are traveling with him. At this point, it's just the 12. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus, referring to himself as the Son of Man, says to them, who, what, all these crowds that have been with us all this time, what's the talk among them? You know, what, what are the crowds saying about who I really am? And they answered him. So they, they said, so they've all got answers. They've all heard rumors. They've all heard what people think. So they answered Jesus. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah. Or others say one of the prophets. It's, uh, it's easy to do this, right? If you're asking, hey, what do other people think? I mean, that's an easy conversation. That's a, that's, a, that's a guy type of conversation. That's nice and distant. That's not vulnerable at all. We can talk about what everyone else thinks. So Jesus asks the question of the disciples, and all the disciples are able to answer. And they, they give these answers that are, I mean, really, they're not terrible answers in, in this one sense. People, by saying he's one of the prophets... I mean, never mind the weird theology that ends up with him being John the Baptist reincarnate or something. Like, that's weird. But, but like, the, the very fact is that identifying him as one of the prophets means that the crowds are, at the very least, acknowledging that he's from God. He's got a message from God. He's been sent from God. He's on a mission from God. So they're, they're sniffing after the right trail. They're barking up the right tree. They're heading in the right direction. But it's, it's not enough. So Jesus, Jesus wants to press in. And things are about to get a little more personal. See, again, it's, there's a world of difference between saying, oh, here's, here's what all the various religions say, and saying, this is what I believe. Taking ownership for it. I, I had this moment just a couple of weeks ago when I was getting my hair cut, and it was the first time with this particular barber, and we're talking, and he asks, what do I do? So I said, I'm a pastor, and he says, you mean like at a like at a church? So yeah, so we got talking about that a little bit and he's talking about how he's read different religions. He wants to get to know different religions. He's particularly drawn to Christianity and we're having this conversation. It was very free, but the tone of the conversation changed when I just simply said, well, what do you actually believe? Well, because now all of a sudden you, you sense, hold on, things are moving from the abstract to the, to the very, like to the vulnerable, to the opening up of my heart in this moment. And, and, and here's, here's the reality. Any follower can say what other people believe. It's a leader who can stand in front of people and say, this is what I believe. It's a game-changing moment in Peter's life when Jesus addresses him in verse 15. He said to them, he says to all the disciples, he floats it out there for all of his followers who are with him, but only one, only the leader will answer. Jesus is emphatic, but you, the you in this phrase is emphatic, but you, who do you say that I, that's fine for the crowds, what about you, who do you say that I am? Again, this is, this is a game changer. It's not just a game changer for Peter in his life. It's a game changing moment for the disciples in general. 
If you look all the way back in chapter 4 in verse 17, there was a phrase that was used there to describe this whole phase of Jesus' ministry. When he starts proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God and performing miracles, it says, from that time on. And, and it describes then what Jesus is going to do. So from 4.17 all the way to chapter 16 and verse 20, has been under that umbrella of Jesus proclaiming the kingdom, speaking publicly, speaking openly, crowds coming and going, performing miracles. There's controversy, but he's running away from it. In chapter 16 and verse 21, it says, from that time, Jesus began to follow his, or he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. He's going to go on and describe that now the whole rest of this next section of the gospel, instead of being about ministry broadly in Galilee, it's about movement and suffering and rejection going towards Jerusalem and the cross. So, so this, this moment shifts everything in the direction of the gospel. This profession that Peter is about to make, this question that Jesus is asking, who do you say that I am, changes everything. The disciples had seen from Jesus teaching and miracles, miracles like they never could have even dreamed of seeing. Like who dreams of seeing a guy walk on water or calm the storms with a word or, or, or making paralytics well so that they get up and walk? Who dreamed of seeing countless demons cast out of people? They've seen all the miracles. They've heard all the teaching. This moment is building to a climax. Where they are in Caesarea Philippi in verse 13, it's about a 40-kilometer walk from where Jesus just was. So here finally, Jesus geographically has managed to get that time away with his disciples that he's been looking for for a few chapters now. They're finally alone. They've been on a 40-kilometer walk, as happens when you travel. Imagine a road trip. There's conversations. There's meandering conversations. There's things that come up. Things are being, themes are being explored. Teaching is being delivered. All of it is building up to this moment in Caesarea Philippi, which historically, so if you picture on a map, they're as far north as Jesus has ever going to get in his ministry. And, and historically, this was a center for Baal worship in the Old Testament. It, it became a center for pagan worship of the, the, the god Pan. And then eventually, most recently, Herod, or, or Philip, the Tetrarch rather, had made this city a center of worship for Caesar. So, so this is historically a place that is where pagan gods are worshipped. And now here in this moment, in this place, Jesus alone with his disciples asks them, who do you say that I am? I want us to understand very clearly that all of our lives are like the disciples' lives in this sense. Everything in our lives is running downhill to the one place where inevitably we stand before Jesus and have to answer the question, who do you say that I am? This is, this is going to change everything. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus pictures himself standing before the multitudes on judgment day. Of some, he will say to them, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. This interaction with Jesus on judgment day when you stand before him will determine your fate for eternity. 
Listen to how Jesus describes it a few chapters from now in Matthew chapter 25. These are the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he, Jesus, will separate people from one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world but what about those on his left verse 41 then he will say to those on his left depart from me you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels this question that Jesus will ask that you will be called to give an answer to will separate us to the right or to the left, to the left, to life or to death. It's one thing to philosophize about Jesus and world religions. It's one thing to talk about some people out there and what they believe. It's another thing to, or it's, just, it's, it's one thing to hem and to haw and to wonder what should I do about Jesus? Am I really ready? But here's the reality. The day is coming and you do not know when it will come, but you do know what the question will be. So do you have an answer? Right now, you can, you can walk away, right? The sermon finishes, you can walk out of here. Christians are texting, calling, whatever. They're asking you questions. You can just ghost them. Like you can, you can escape. But one day, you will look Jesus in his eyes, and there will be nowhere else to look but only at the king who created you. And you will have to give an answer. Who do you say that I am? All the sermons that you've heard, all the times you've picked up your Bible or not picked up your Bible, all the dialogues that you've had running, all the things you think God is calling you to, all the truth that's been laid before you that you've listened to or plugged your ears to, all of it will come to a head in that day when you stand before your maker and are called to give an answer. Who do you say I am? See, if you get an answer to that question, you're ready to die. And that's a good place to be. Jesus wants to know who you say he is. He, he, here's, the, here's the second thing from this text. Jesus wants you to, you to know that there's a right answer. This is not the kind of question that's just floated out there and any answer will do. Like, who do you feel Jesus is? Like, this is somehow up to you to determine who Jesus is. There actually is a right answer. In verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the deliverer, the chosen one, the appointed one. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. It just means Simon, son of Jonah. Why is he blessed? Because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
See, Jesus says, what do, every, what, what do other people think? And everyone's got an answer for that. Jesus says, but you, what do you think? And only one person speaks up. It's Peter who answers the question and Peter who gets the response from Jesus. What is Peter's answer that Jesus responds so positively to? It's this, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. The word simply means the anointed one. It's the fulfillment of the longings and the hopes of God's people through the ages. Who were the anointed ones in the Old Testament? Oh, it would have been priests. Priests who make a way for us to be accepted to God by their sacrifice. It would have been prophets who bring the word of God to us so that we can know him. It would have been kings who rule on God's behalf so that we can live as part of his people. These are the anointed ones and Christ is the fulfillment of all of them. The Messiah, the deliverer is the one sent from God to save his people. You are the Christ. He says, you are the son of God. This, this title is a glorious one. It's, it's one that's um, it's, it's associated with the Messiah. So in passages like 2 Samuel 7, when the promise is given to David that his son will sit on the throne forever and his son will reign, God says of David's son, he will be to me a son and I will be to him a father. Psalm 2 picks up on this language as well. And God speaking to the Messiah says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So there's a sense in which speaking of the Messiah and the son of God, this is really the same thing. This is saying that the son of God is the one who sits on David's throne and rules on God's behalf over God's people. But, but, but Peter doesn't just say son of God. He says son of the living God. Here again in a pagan region where the city has historically been devoted to dead gods, to idols, to the mute, to the deaf, to the blind, to the dumb gods of the nations. Jesus is the son of the living, speaking God who reigns over all. I love how Jesus responds immediately to Peter. Now, sometimes it's not the greatest thing, and Peter, Peter knows this, and he's going to know it even more in the next few chapters of the gospel. Sometimes getting immediate feedback from Jesus makes you like wish you never opened your mouth in the first place. Now, in just a few verses, he, Jesus is going to respond to Peter and call him Satan. Like, that one doesn't work out so well. But this one works out so well. He, he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds in real time. It says, blessed are you, happy are you, approved are you. Whether you realize it or not, you are privileged and blessed, Simon. Though you are the son of John, my heavenly father has revealed this to you. He has given, my heavenly father has delivered to you what no earthly father could, which is revelation of the spiritual reality of who I am. We live in a world that has seemingly endless options for, for everything. Um, like, you want to buy a toothbrush? You walk into the aisle at Shoppers Drug Mart or Walmart or wherever you are, and there's a whole wall of toothbrushes. Like, why do we need that many options? We simply do not. Sometimes we just get used to living in a world where there's all the options and they're all before us and we don't know how to pick. So eventually we just kind of pick one and act as if it doesn't matter. 
We, we often treat truth like that too, right? Like what are we supposed to believe about COVID and vaccinations and government lockdowns and all these kinds of things? And we act like the truth somehow is just, it's, it's, it's whatever we find from our Google searches versus what you find from your Google search. And it's like, we just sort of select what it is that we're gonna believe, acting as if all options are equal. There is a right answer. There is a right answer to who Jesus is. It, it, it's really funny. Like we, we live in a world where people treat Jesus like this. Like, oh, you think Jesus is this? I think he's this. You think this about God? I think that about God. Listen, if you thought I was like a purple spaghetti monster, I would be offended. I'm an actual thing. I'm a person. Jesus is a person. God is real. He is knowable. There is a truth and there is error. There is right and there is wrong when it comes to explaining who he is. Peter's answer is correct. Do you have the right answer? Do you have the right answer about who Christ is? Do you believe he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised deliverer, the savior of the world? Do you believe he is the son of God, the king over all nations, the son of the living God, the only God who forever will reign? Have you put your trust, your confidence in him? If you have that right answer, like, sometimes it's easy when you're listening to a sermon to be like, wait, I'm listening for the part that applies to me. This is the part that applies to people who don't know Jesus. Listen, this actually applies to you. If you have the right answer, this gives you all the cause in the world to rejoice. Because just like Peter, you didn't figure this out on your own. This didn't come from you. This isn't because you're smarter. This isn't because you sin less. This isn't because you were born into the right family. This is because our God and our Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, looked on you and blessed you with eyes to see Jesus for who he is. If this does not stir worship in you, I don't think you have the right answer. It should stir thankfulness and worship, but it also has implications for our evangelism too, right? Because no one we talk to, if, if, if the seeing of the truth depends on the revelation of the Heavenly Father, then it doesn't depend on our tactics. No one is beyond hope. But it also means that no one doesn't need prayer because it takes a work of God for them to see. Well, what if I'm not convinced yet? I've heard Peter's answer. What if I'm still not convinced that this is, this is what I'm supposed to believe about Jesus? Well, here's the third thing I want us to see from this text, and it's this. That Jesus himself wants you to follow Peter. Because Peter's got the right answer for life. He wants you to follow Peter. Look at verse 18. I tell you, he declares to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter. I, I love this. Peter makes a declaration about Jesus, so Jesus turns it back right around on him. Uh, Jesus, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, and you, you're Peter, which was not his name before, it was Simon. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. 
What, what we miss, of course, in English is that the word for Peter, the name, and the word for rock are the same word. So you are Peter, and on this Peter, you are rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, some of your translations will have gates of death. I think that's a better translation. We might think about that in a minute. The gates of death will not prevail against it. Verse 19, I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been already bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have already been loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Well, this passage has caused me no small amount of consternation this week. Uh, These verses, you could read, if you open up a commentary, you will read on these short few verses, you will read page after page after page detailing how this word versus that word versus this phrase versus that phrase are interpreted historically and what about this and what about that. I'm going to try to spare you all that, but I'll tell you this. If, if you want to talk to me, if you're like, if you want to geek out theologically about these verses, like we can do that afterward. Um, if, if, if you want to talk to me about like whether Jesus was speaking Greek or Aramaic and why it matters for our understanding of this passage or whether, whether Peter was ever used as a proper name before this moment. Like there's all kinds of stuff that's been written. I, I had to read about that this week. If you want to talk to me about all the ways that people try to use the word ecclesia to build their systematic theologies, the word that's translated church here in ways that I feel like are probably illegitimate. If you want to talk to me about all the ways Peter or people try to get around the simple meaning of the pun that Jesus is saying to Peter, you're the rock on which I'm going to build my church. There's all kinds of ways people try to get around around that. If you want to talk to me about the ways that people understand what Hades means or what the gates of Hades means as a phrase, we could talk about that. If, if you want to talk about the significance of a pair of future perfect passive participles, especially when one of them has a defective, has defective verb forms in the indicative mood and what that means for this passage and how we understand it, we could talk about that afterwards. It is a complex couple of verses. What I'm going to try to do is simplify all of that for you and just tell you what I think it means. And if you disagree with me, that's fine. We can debate it afterwards, okay? Simply this. Jesus looks at Peter as a first among the apostles to speak up, to boldly proclaim his faith, and he gives Peter a new name, or Simon a new name. You are Peter Again, I believe Jesus was speaking Aramaic. In Aramaic, the two words are the exact same. It's the word, sometimes Peter in the New Testament has the name Cephas. That's the word that Jesus was using here specifically in Aramaic. It it just simply means rock. That's the image that Jesus is going for. Peter, you are a rock, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. So the image is simple. Peter's a rock, and Jesus is a builder, and on this rock, Jesus is then going to build his church, the house. What is the church? The word that's translated church, it's only used a couple times in the Gospels, here and in chapter 18. Historically, it didn't mean church the way we've come to know church. Historically, it just meant gathering or assembly or group of people. 
It, it could be used socially or politically or religiously. In the Old Testament, it was used specifically to talk about the gathering of God's people. So not so much a synagogue, but just a general assembly of who are God's people, who are the people of Yahweh. And sometimes I think in the debate, sometimes people want to overemphasize what the word itself means, the Greek word means, and they miss the most important thing about this phrase, which is Jesus says, I will build my church. So somehow it's gone from what was in the old covenant, the, the, the congregation, the assembly of Yahweh, to now all of a sudden it's my assembly. The assembly of Christ, the people who are defined by their relationship to him. What brings us together, what gathers us, what assembles us is our union in Jesus. What Jesus is talking about is the church made up of people, beginning with Peter, that will never be overcome by death. So there's a promise that's given here to the church, and it matches Peter's declaration, right? Peter said to Jesus, you are the son of the living God, the God who lives and does not die. And so if this is the church of the living God, the church of the God who does not die, then the church itself can never be overcome by death because they're bound up with him. The church will be built and will not be overcome. All those who are part of it will know an indestructible life because they're saved by an indomitable savior. But there's a promise given here, not just to the church, but specifically to Peter. Did, did you catch it? Peter is the first one to profess, and so there's a first promise given to him, verse 19, I will give you... In the original singular, he's talking to Peter. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What are we supposed to make of the keys of the kingdom of heaven? There's a few clues here that are worth thinking about. One, you'll notice that he says whatever you bind or whatever you loose not not whomever you bind or whomever you loose. It's not so much declaring who's in and who's out, so much as deciding what's true and what's not. What is binding for God's people? More than decisions about people, it's decisions about things that will then define God's people. And these keys are passed on to the other apostles. So if you look ahead into chapter 18 and verse 18, Jesus there says, truly I say to you, plural, to his apostles, whatever you, plural, bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So whatever is given to Peter here is given to the rest of the apostles there. So these keys, these keys of the kingdom of heaven, they refer to, I believe, to the apostles' official teaching about who Jesus is, that people will either accept or reject and thereby find the kingdom of heaven open to them or closed to them. In other words, if they learn from the apostles how to answer, who do you say that I am? right profession about Jesus. 
Now, what's, what's remarkable about this is you come to the end of this passage of verse 20, and Jesus then turns around and says to the disciples, wait, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. He doesn't want them to get ahead of themselves just yet because there are pieces that are still missing in their understanding of who Jesus is, and he needs time to still keep filling that in because the apostles are going to be the ones that the whole world is going to need to trust if they're going to understand who Jesus is and be saved. Some people make a big deal about the fact that the keys are given to Peter. The Roman Catholic Church, for example, says, well, the keys were given to Peter, and so therefore we have proof that Peter and his descendants are supposed to rule over the church forever and ever. The text says none of those things. It's silliness. So what is, we want to be clear. What does it actually mean that the keys are given first to Peter? That Peter is told that he is the rock on which the church will be built. I think Jesus is referring to chronology. Here's what I mean. Here's how this plays out. In Acts chapter 1, after the, when, when the church is assembled after, Pentec- or after the ascension and they're waiting for Pentecost and they're trying to figure out what to do because they need to replace Judas, it's Peter who takes the lead. In Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit falls on Pentecost, there's a sermon that needs to be preached. Who is it that speaks on behalf of the apostles, on behalf of the disciples? Who preaches the first Christian sermon the world has ever heard? It's Peter. In Acts chapter 8, when the gospel is going to the Samaritans, who is it that's sent on behalf of the church to make sure the teaching is legitimate? It's Peter. In Acts chapter 10 and 11, when the gospel first goes to the Gentiles, who is it that goes? It's Peter. Now, eventually, by Acts chapter 13, the other apostles are going to take over the main stage, and we don't hear much about Peter from there. The whole rest of the New Testament still has yet to be written, and the voices of the rest of the apostles will take over. They will carry that authority with him, but it's Peter who goes first. Simply put, Peter was first among all the equals of the apostles, leading the way and preaching the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you must believe in order to be saved. A gospel that opens the doors to the kingdom of heaven. Here's here's what's amazing about that. It started with Peter and his imperfect yet bold confession of the truth which then was owned by the rest of the apostles and then by the church, by 3,000 at Pentecost. And then the Lord continued to increase the numbers and add day by day those who were being saved. And the church was being built and it spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. The 2,000 years later here in English, on the other side of the globe, in a totally different context than everything that they knew. And what are we but the church of the Messiah, the son of the living God? Here is proof that Jesus is who Peter says he is. He's fulfilling his word. He's building his church. The gates of death have not and will not overcome it. The result is that still today, thousands of years later, the Heavenly Father is still opening the eyes of sinners to see Jesus for who he is so that the kingdom of heaven is open to them and they enter into the church and have the promise of eternal life given to them. You can mask the church. You could even muzzle the church. 
You can imprison pastors. You can charge us with hate crimes. You can stop us from gathering. But our king is the Messiah, the son of the living God. He's building his church. And the gates of death itself will never overcome it. So Jesus is saying to you, I want to know who you say that I am. I want you to know that there's a right answer. To find that right answer, the way to life, you're to follow Peter and the apostles, the teaching of the New Testament, that there is salvation in no other name but the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. The moment when you will stand before your maker and define your relationship in words with him is coming. Are you ready?